Let's pray. Father, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your grace and mercy towards sinners who are undeserving. Thank you for this church that uh, you have established. I pray, Father, that we, when, we, when we come here through the doors, we don't come here to get blessings, but we come here to bless you and to glorify you. That we come here not to be served, but to serve in your kingdom. Father, I pray that uh, as your teaching goes out today, that uh, it's received uh, uh, through your Holy Spirit in a way that would edify, in a way that would equip, and in a way that would bless you uh, most of all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've heard some great preaching the last three weeks. So this, this is a tough follow-up. And I want to do this review because uh, there's just so, so many great things that were shared uh, by Leonard and RJ and Jonas. And, you know, and it's always a good idea uh, in review to go back in Scripture and then forward in Scripture. It's a great way to read the Bible, isn't it? So we're going to do that just a little bit. In three, chapter 3, verses 13 and 16, Peter laid down a principle for his readers uh, in general. If you are devoted to what is good, no one will harm you. But if you suffer for what is right, doing what is right, you are blessed. God has you covered either way, so do not fear. Whatever response you receive from the world, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We learned about that. Christians must be strong witnesses for Jesus with their lives so that they have an opportunity to be a strong witness for Jesus with their words. God's not looking for spectators. He's looking for players who live for their king with righteousness and then give testimony about him with gentleness and respect. In chapter 3, verses 17 through 22, we learned that we saw that all people in this fallen world suffer. Everyone suffers. But it's better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than for doing evil. Peter reminds us that Christ is our supreme example of godly suffering. He suffered for sins, yours and mine, to bring us to God. He visited the devil and his followers in, in uh, the spiritual realm and proclaimed his victory over them. Hallelujah. Then he was seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. And if you know Christ, in other words, if you are born again, you were raised with him. So then your present suffering doesn't compare to the victory you have and will have through Christ. I think this is part of the meaning of Romans 8.37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Folks, this includes suffering. You see, Jesus spiritually spoke through Noah, we found out, offering salvation to humanity as he built an ark. But only Noah and his family responded. The ark provided salvation and deliverance from judgment. Similarly, the believers to whom Peter was writing this would be brought to safety through God's judgment 
by being united with Christ, the New Testament ark of safety. We saw that deliverance does not come through water baptism, but by testifying of entering the ark of safety, Jesus Christ, which is the basis of spiritual baptism. Well, that brings us to today's text, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, it says i got about 40 minutes here, right? But the Bible says one day is at a thousand years, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I can stay up there until Jesus comes back, either way. So let's read it all together. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. War. Weapons, joy. I want to read one more text from Scripture. And this is in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to, be, and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil that is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. You know, when I go to my favorite fast food establishment, they sometimes ask me if I want to supersize my meal. And my response is always, hell yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, who wants anything regular, Right? And you know, as we saw in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 here, right, it says that God has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, he doesn't want to supersize us, but he wants to eternalize us, get us ready for heaven. And, and there's a battle that we have to be ready to fight, but not in the flesh, rather in the spirit, and not from the world's supersized view but from God's view of eternity, an eternity that he has placed in our hearts. So what it is about the world that gives us this deep urge to want powerful weapons? Right? Why do we write them into our stories? You know, all, all these uh, fantasy movies are all about wielding this, wielding that, defeating this, defeating that. It's because we know that the world is a field of battle. And that there are enemies to cut down and evils to oppose. And that strength is needed to wield weapons to fight. Well, this, this morning, Peter's intent is to arm us. To gird us with weapons, to walk into the fight equipped. He would have us be dangerous to our enemies. But as Paul says, we don't battle with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high, place, in, in high places. And so the weapon Peter aims to put in our sheath is correspondingly 
not one used against flesh and blood. So here's how we're going to tackle the text this morning. I'm, I'm going to first summarize the main points that Peter would have us grab onto in the text and show you how I got that summary. And then we'll see in the text what it is that Peter believes will result from our obedience to his instruction. So let's first go to the girt for war, being girded for war. Here's the main point I think that Peter would have us grab onto. The overriding principle and instruction we would get if we distill these two verses uh, down to their essence. Arm yourself with a joy that death cannot quench. Arm yourself with a compass bearing to direct every particle of your heart, your soul, your mind and strength so that you can take every thought and impulse and desire and take it captive and make it obey the gospel. The gospel of suffering and subsequent glory. Where am I getting this? Verse 1. Peter tells us that since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So let's interrogate this section. Uh, ask it some questions to see what it's telling us. First, what suffering of Christ is Peter referring to? The answer is in verse actually 18 of chapter 3, if you go back, right? Verse 1 here calls us back to verse 18 of chapter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins, for the, uh, for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then we come to, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You see the connection? So where did Christ suffer in the flesh? The whole narrative of the Gospels in particular, but really scriptures in general, bends towards this suffering. Jesus suffering on the cross. The cross is where God suffered in true humanity to save us and bring him to himself. As Peter's already made plain. So that brings us to another question uh, to ask the text because there's something about Jesus' thinking, Jesus' mindset as he suffered on the cross that Peter wants us to imitate. He tells us to put on the same way of thinking as Jesus in his suffering as if this way of thinking is a weapon. So we need to sort out what that same way of thinking is. What way of thinking did Jesus carry to the cross? What pattern of thought moved Christ to willingly suffer the humiliation and crucifixion, to bear God's wrath for sin? The scriptures answer this question. And, and, and it's like in this tilt-a-whirl of gospel uh, textures and hues that Jesus suffered. He suffered to be just and a justifier of those of faith, Romans 3.26. He suffered to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. He suffered to be the firstborn of many, brother, firstborn of many brothers, Romans 8.20. He suffered for his friends, John 15.13. He suffered to bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. He suffered to put demonic power to open shame, Colossians 2.15. He suffered to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't. Romans 8.3. But my friends, there's, there's a verse that tells us why Jesus suffered specifically what manner of thinking moved Jesus to suffer on the cross that I think gives us this great, big, categorical reason 
and manner of thinking that moved Christ to take up his cross that holds all of these other reasons within it. And it's in Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, let me start over. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' mind was girt with joy, joy like a sword, as he went to the cross. Cutting down every reason to avoid the cross with a smile of future glory and future harvest. And so to every voice that whispered in Jesus' mind, don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. He said, I must. There is unthinkable joy on the other side. Don't go to the cross. I must. There is joy of friends ransomed on the other side. Don't go to the cross. I must. For the joy of being firstborn among throngs of brothers. Don't go to the cross. I must for the joy of gloating over the shame of my defeated foes. Don't go to the cross. I must for the joy of doing what the flesh weak and law couldn't. Don't go to the cross. I must for the joy of God's holy glory and righteous mercy vindicated. The joy set before him in the magnifying of glory is the master reason that holds all reasons. For the joy of salvation and all his fruit, Jesus was willing to suffer death and shame. That joy is the joy of fruit. It's the joy of the end or the result of the cross, if you will. The cross itself was agony rather than joy. But that agony gave birth to a kind of joy that otherwise could never have been. The mindset that moved Christ to take up the cross was therefore a wholly reasonable one. There was more joy to be had in a life shaped by suffering and subsequent glory than there had than uh, if it was just for self-protection, a life of self-protection. Turn with me to John 12:24, if you will. And it reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus compared himself to a seed. If the seed doesn't die and go to burial, it will never spring up into new life and bear a hundredfold fruit. The mind of Christ in suffering is the mind of a seed dying, a seed buried. In the mindset that though fruit and harvest requires blood and death, the harvest of joy outweighs the suffering a billionfold. So, what does it mean then that we are to arm ourselves with that same mindset? It means that in every single atom of life, we aim for the joy of a life shaped by death and by burial and resurrection. 
a life shaped by hard and even painful obedience to God. Trusting by faith that he is a God of resurrection. Hallelujah. We arm ourselves with what Jesus armed himself with in his mortal suffering. Joy. We trust that God is a God who never bids us come and die, but to raise us up again more fully and truly alive. Oh, my Lord, how many people do you know that they call themselves believers, they have no joy? They tell you about all their problems, all their suffering, all that's happened to them. They, they, They have no joy. I'm not saying it's not okay to share this stuff. But if if your life has no joy, I question if your life has Christ. And so Peter would have us say, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to suffer for the sake of the joy set before me. Arm yourselves this way. But why say this, Peter? Why do we need to hear this exhortation? It's because nearly every act of obedience to God looks from some angle, think about it, like loss, like suffering, like something dying. And Peter wants us to see that God isn't trying to take from us when he bids us to come and die, but rather to give us his blessing. Do you see that? So now we see the fruit of obedience. And that's the overriding principle of verse 1. What Peter does after this is to show us what happens as we obey it. As we put on the mind of Christ in his suffering like a sword and bring it to bear in the fight uh, that we're all facing. So if you go about girt with this weapon, joy, what will happen? Well, guess what? The first thing that happens is we endanger our own sin. Remember, Peter's trying to make us dangerous. He's intent on arming us. And the weapon he wants to gird us with, the mind of Christ, is a weapon that endangers sin. Look again at verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does he mean by saying, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Now, this is one of those uh, texts uh, that uh, there's, <laughs> I'm sure, a lot of disagreement with. And I may cause some more. But I think the sense of Peter's words here is emphatically not that we should seek our suffering intensity to kill sin. Or that Christians who suffer become perfect. But rather that the Christian who takes up the mindset of Christ in his suffering, just as we talked about, and willingly chooses to suffer for the sake of Christ. And the joy of suffering with Christ is making the kind of choice that is antithetical to the choice of sin. Make sense? Or to put it another way, if you trust in God's resurrected joy-bringing work enough to die to yourself and even suffer for Jesus' sake, that's the kind of faith that is poison to sin. You can't have the mind operating and uh, uh, you can't have the mind operating in sin at the same time any more than you can be walking in the spirit and simultaneously, simultaneously gratifying the flesh. You can't do it, right? Uh, you can't. Be going left and go right at the same time, can you? Now, whether or not I have the sense of that verse correct or not, Peter believes that when we take up and arm ourselves with this way of thinking, one of the enemies we declare war on is sin. 
Verse 3 identifies, I'm going to jump to verse 3, but it's not in the text. I'm supposed to be preaching on I'm jumping there anyway. Identifies a list of wells that the flesh likes to drink from, to seek satisfaction. Free sex, drunkenness, sleeping around, worshiping false gods, chasing after some broken GPS of the passions and emotions and desires and longings and instincts of the fallen heart. But when God saves us and renews our minds, after the mind of Christ, we see these things for what they are. Not glorious streams of thirst-quenching spring water, but fetid pools of death and disease and destruction. So when we take up the arms of the gospel-shaped mind, war is declared on sin. And sin falls dead. But listen, this is crucial. In this war with sin, what we're not doing is never the engine that drives a Christian life. What we're not doing isn't the main point, but rather what we're doing. So now we get this compass, if you will, GPS, if you will, on our bearing for life. In Leonard's sermon, he used a word called pivoting, and that's been on my mind <laughs> ever since you preached that sermon. I could not get it out of my mind. I said, okay, I know what he meant, but there's more. There's more to that, right? And, and time doesn't allow in a sermon for us to just open everything up completely. But it just, Leonard got me thinking, man. He got me praying about it, right? If we look at verse 2 of the text again, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Peter just gave us a compass for a bearing for life. There's a thing we're not living for anymore and a thing that we are living for. We live in the body not for human passions but for the will of God. Therefore the will of God, which Peter has just told us, looks like being armed with that cross-shaped way of thinking becomes the compass bearing for everything we do. And this is, folks, this is nothing short of, of, of this universal compass bearing in everything that you and I will ever do. You know, I walk through life as a husband. Where would this compass bearing take me in my marriage? I walk through this life as a father. Where would this compass bearing take me in my parenting? I walk through this life as a friend, as a church member, as a human being, a neighbor, a citizen. Where would this compass bearing, the mind of Christ that laid down life and comfort for the sake of the gospel, fruit, and joy, take me? Where's it going to take me? Do you see what I mean? It's not about what we're not doing being less the point than what we are doing. The positive aim of fruitful, cross-shaped obedience to the will of God for every part of my life is the main thing. The thing that automatically and necessarily leaves sin behind as I walk in it. It's like this. If I'm traveling somewhere glorious, say to my, the glorious manna of my local In-N-Out burger, as long as I stubbornly obey my GPS at every turn, I automatically and necessarily exclude from that journey every other destination of lesser glory, like a salad restaurant or the local KFC here, or anywhere that serves 
hummus or sushi. I tried sushi once. I cooked it. It tastes just like fish. <laughs> Joyful, fruitful obedience to our duties. Those are the galloping horses in front of the cart of life. Where you're not, where you're not doing becomes what you're not doing because it was what you're fleeing from. The focus isn't on drinking to excess and gossiping and looking at pornography and being bitter at everyone or short-tempered. No, it's the pursuit of love of fruit, of the will of God that drives our lives. Does that make sense? Not yet. <laughs> and in every situation I can ask, what is my God-given duty and how can I pursue obedience to it with joy? Another way of asking that is, is what I'm about to say or do going to glorify God? Am I believing or acting like this God-given duty is a curse rather than a blessing? How can I arm myself with the mind of Christ, die to my flesh, and therefore see God bring life and joy from that death? And what happens as we follow that death and burial and resurrection-shaped compass bearing through life, a life that we live as, as believers? So you know what, when you do that, you know what happens? You look weird. That's what happens when God's people pursue the, uh, the will of God by the grace of God is that they become the church peculiar, peculiar, peculiar. There we go. There's this kind of suffering that we ought to expect as followers of Jesus, namely that people will think and whisper behind our backs and say out loud, right, that we're stupid or that we're weird. And listen, Christians are weird, right? That's a design feature. One of the worst things we've attempted in the last century or so in the American church is to try to make this thing not weird. Even in our rush to correct the, the, this very much mistaken notion that you're saved by not cussing and having tattoos or smoking, we made it seem as if Christians are actually not different at all from non-Christians. I think a short history lesson would tell us that uh, uh, might be helpful here. That's important. Modernism from the Enlightenment on down has disenchanted the world, folks. Meaning that the rationalistic humanism, that the glory of man is the highest glory, and that scientific rationalism is the gospel to us, to that glory, is stripped down reality to just this, this waste of a world. This is a world with no real purpose, no real meaning, and therefore no real joys, no glories, no beauties, no goodness. It, it has no real bad travesties, no evils, no sin. Everything in this world just is. Humanity becomes a prisoner to despair in this kind of a worldview. This is why we, we have to look after our young people. They're being, they're being assaulted on uh, every level from every angle, in their schools, in universities. As soon as they leave the, outside the doors of this church, they're being assaulted. And, and it causes them to, to seek these different spiritual experiences that are phony. This new age and other vaguely spiritual doorways. They're reaching uh, for this uh, numinous, for the spiritual, for the God that culture has banished. 
Now, what happened in, in this modern evangelical church is that they reacted to this encroachment of modernism. You can see it in, in, in some of the denominations now. And they've replaced it with pragmatism. They said, hey, we're losing the people to modernism. Let's remake the worship of the church in the image of modernism, whatever culturally uh, relevant shape we think it needs to be. And so we tried to strip out anything peculiar about our worship, anything weird about our worship. Our gathering, our singing, our preaching, our everything. We traded out hymns and psalms for methods of singing that put the congregation in the primary seat. For music that sounds more like what's playing on the radio. We accept false teachers. Like Joel Osteen, like Benny Hinn, like Kenneth Copeland, like Joyce Meyer, and your local false teacher over at Shiloh, Patricia King. You know who their father is? The devil. Their father's not our God, their father's the devil. Music, think of Hillsong, think of Bethel music. You know, we traded our, out our longer expository sermons, like this one, <laughs> for lectures that more, look more like TED Talks, right? We traded catechism and, uh, uh, you know, for some kind of just weird kids' ministries that, that really don't teach anything. Maybe handicrafts, I don't know. Architecturally, we traded buildings that look like churches to buildings that look like strip malls and car dealerships. We tried to make it so that a non-Christian could walk into our services and feel completely comfortable. Well, maybe you're thinking at this point, well, duh. Of course we want them to be comfortable. Well, hear me out, yes and no. Yes, we want to be welcoming and loving and warm, but we want to be peculiar and weird and even make someone uneasy. There should be a sharp edge of distinction, my friends, that visitors feel when they see our worship. They should feel like they've stepped out of their culture and time stream and into a different sort of thing. The house of God. Because they are dead tired of the wasteland of materialism and equally let down by pop evangelism, shallow lights and, and smoke machines and rock bands and imitations of popular culture. You know, humans were made for transcendence, for communion with the numinous, for relationship with God. Now, if I've offended anyone here today, I can only echo the words of the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe, first the Jew, then the Gentile. There's my apology. This is why the worship of the church has always looked sharply different, peculiar, full of symbolism and ritual, and even ceremonial sometimes, in contrast to the rest of life. Look through the Old Testament liturgies. You'll see what I'm talking about. You'll find incense, psalm singing, vestments, 
an ordered ceremony. Look to the New Testament, the early church, and the church up to about the middle of the 19th century, and you'll see the same thing. The world is disenchanted by modernism and shallow pop religion. We ought to re-enchant it in our gatherings and in our living. Our worship and our daily walking should make evident our differentness. Is that a word? Christians are in the business, listen to this, Christians are in the business of being bent to the shape of God, not bending God to the shape of our comfort. So when non-Christians see us at work, at play, at family life, and at church, there should be an air of holy weirdness about us. The weapons of our worship should show. They should look at us like, why do you have that bloody great sword on your belt? Are you one of those Civil War reenactment guys? You know, authentic Christianity is just as weird as, or even weirder than adult guys dressing up uh, like they're in Camelot or something fighting with fake foam swords. And Peter says that we ought to be fearless in our weirdness because we know that the world is headed for judgment. That Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. When they judge us, we will stand because one is coming who will judge them. Let's talk about everybody's favorite subject, repentance. And Leonard, here we go. Pivot. You see, repentance, you know what it does? It cultivates joy. Often we treat repentance as a statement. You know, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Text kind of a box, hopefully. Alleviates our guilt, maybe. But if we look at Psalm 51, and, and you can, you can uh, uh, read it on your own, because I'll, I'll run out of time if I read the, the whole psalm. But it's a great passage on repentance. So you'll see the first thing that happens in that psalm is sin is defined. The first step to meaningful, meaningful confession is understanding what sin is. David uses three different words for it. Iniquity, sin, and transgression. Each term has been deliberately chosen for its unique meaning. Transgression is rebellion against God's authority and law. Iniquity is a distortion of what should be. And sin is missing the mark. David also says his sin is deep. There is no minimizing it or excusing it. In that psalm, we see an appeal to God's mercy. The psalm begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And here David appeals for forgiveness based on what he knows about God's character, that he is merciful. David knows God is committed to him in a relationship of unfailing love. And when we come before God of repentance, we do so because of his covenant with us through Jesus Christ. We see in in this 51st Psalm that we avoid defensiveness and see God rightly. David's sin hurt multiple people. He committed adultery, orchestrated a murder, and tried to cover it all up. And yet he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Speaking to God. How can that be? Sin is missing the mark, God's mark. Our sins do hurt others. And we must seek forgiveness from them 
But all sin is ultimately against God. In Psalm 51, we look to Jesus. I know it doesn't say Jesus there, but we look to Jesus. David writes, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He knows hyssop signifies purification with blood. And we know that from uh, Exodus 24. And he knows that blood alone can make him clean. What he doesn't know is exactly how this will be done. But we do. We have the full revelation of Jesus, who has appeared once for all, the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26. And then we ask in repentance, ask God to break us and to heal us. David prays, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. When God reveals our sin to us, it's painful. It's never pleasant to confront just how unholy we are. But like a doctor resetting a bone, a fractured bone, it's it's God who breaks and God who sets and God who heals. In this psalm, we're, we're comforted by the Spirit in repentance. Next, David prays, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But the fact that David is grieved over his sin is a sign that the Spirit is at work in him. Have you, have you ever been so discouraged by your sin that, that you've wondered, how can God even love me? Anybody ever feel like that? Surely I'm not really a Christian. Well, take comfort in knowing that the grief you're experiencing is a sign that you have the Holy Spirit working in you, causing you to hate what God hates. Amen. In repentance, we rejoice and proclaim truth. In verses 12 through 15 in Psalm 51, David asked God to make him so joyful about his salvation that he can't help but proclaim the gospel to others. Jonas did a great job about talking about the gospel, how it has to be proclaimed, how it's the only way of salvation. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. This is important because so often we do the opposite. We wallow in our sin and draw back from serving others because we think we're unworthy. But the joy of righteousness, I'm sorry, the joy of forgiveness should compel us to share the good news with friends and families and coworkers and whoever comes across our path. And then David resolved to obey as part of repentance. We can do all the steps above, but if we're planning to sin in the same way again, then grace isn't truly taking root. What God desires is the mark of true repentance, a heart that is broken by sin and truly contrite. A Puritan pastor, uh, Thomas Watson, wrote, till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If we come to, heart, if we come to God with a heart of a, set on obedience, he will not despise it because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And then we need full contact fruitfulness. There are a thousand things I could leave you with by way of exhortation from this text, but the one I think we need most is uh, we, we, we may need this encouragement. The Christian life is supposed to be full contact. All in obedience to Christ's great commission. And what's the great commission? 
is to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of our triune God and teaching Christians to obey the Lord's commands. This cannot be done without arming our minds with the way of Christ, the way of suffering for joy's sake, for glory's sake, because the Great Commission won't be completed without risky obedience to Jesus, without cost-counting sacrifice, without discomfort and dismay. Great Commission work is hard work. It means that the gospel must be brought into conflict with the culture of death, with those who are dead, and for the sake of those who are dead. This will result in suffering, friends. But one of the ways the Lord has advanced his kingdom is through the suffering of his people, whereby they display the very shape of the gospel of suffering and subsequent glory in their bodies. May we live in such a way uh, as to make great, big, easy targets for opposition. May we be tremendously strange or weird people by God's grace. May May we do so armed with gospel joy, trusting in the God who quickens the dead to life. So I want to finish up by just saying that I'm sure as Peter started to write this epistle, his thoughts must have raced back when he denied his Lord three times. Jesus had died for him and taken the punishment that he rightfully deserved. And even though he had denied Jesus, Peter was not rejected or replaced. Peter was not only forgiven for all his sins, but recommissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to be his chief apostle who would feed his sheep, who would shepherd his lambs and unlock the kingdom of heaven, uh, the joys of heaven to Jew and Gentile alike as he shared the wonderful gospel of grace. That's what Peter did. And since Christ has suffered in the flesh for him, Peter wanted to dedicate his life to his Lord no matter what the cost or how unjust the suffering he himself had to face. Peter knew that the road to the kingdom of Christ must pass via the cross. And this is no less true for those that are saved by grace through faith today. It's it's true for you and me. The cross is before the crown. The earthly pain and human sorrow precedes our heavenly reward and eternal joy. Christ patiently endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And likewise, his disciples must follow us. We must follow in our master's footsteps. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, we should be ready to arm ourselves with the same determined purpose as our Lord and for his glory. Christ suffered unjustly and with much patience. And my friends, we have to apply the same principle of patience and endurance in the midst of unfair treatment and discriminatory practices that we may receive in our, in our Christian walk. Will, Will had a wonderful prayer that he prayed. And, you know, what I got out of that is we don't suffer near as much as some of our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. But it's coming. We have been brought with the precious, we have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, should arm ourselves with the same courage and determination to accept suffering in this life for the sake of our God and Savior. Because Jesus suffered in the flesh on our account, we are to arm ourselves with the same resolve and purpose as him, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
And again, I'll just ask one more time, what does it mean that he was suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, just so we can be clear on this. When we are born again, we do not automatically become sinless, even though we have been covered in Christ's righteousness. We retain a sin nature until we go to be with the Lord. It cannot be said that we have ceased from sin, for the Bible clearly says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We as born-again believers who have been saved by grace through faith are eternally redeemed. However, we can choose to live the spiritual life or walk the carnal life. We can choose between living for self or suffering for the sake of Christ. Where we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. We can live in the world and permit worldly philosophies to infect our lives and tarnish our witness. Or we can be in the world but not become part of the world. We can adopt the ways of the world uh, which discredit our Savior. Or we can swim against the tide of hatred and animosity in a world that is at enmity with God. It's at war with God and in conflict with his children, with you. We can take the easy route in life and compromise the truth of this glorious gospel that's saved us and indulge in worldly ways and ungodly alliances. Or we can take the path of purity, my friends, and righteousness by eschewing all that is evil and bearing the reproach of Christ and our suffering and shame. For how can we continue to be slaves of sin when the Lord Jesus, who died for us and rose again, has set us free from slavery to sin and broken a suffocating hold on our lives? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful example of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who came to earth to identify with our sin and suffered in the flesh on our account so that we might be saved by faith in his sacrificial work on the cross. I pray that we develop the same resolve to live wholly unto the Lord, knowing that he has not only paid for our sin, but also broken the power of sin in our lives. Praise his holy name, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.